Welcome to Grab the Gavel, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. The conversations presented aim to show students the human side of judges, their diversity, backgrounds, and common struggles. We hope these insights might inspire students to consider legal careers or even grab the gavel themselves one day as a judge. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Zia Faruqi. All right, thanks so much. Welcome to Grab the Gavel, Justice Lou. I'm so excited to have you here uh, to talk today uh, to someone who I've seen, had the pleasure of seeing speaking before uh, and someone who really is, uh, I think I'm allowed to embarrass you a little bit, hopefully, um, a hero of mine. So it's so neat to talk to an Asian American who's uh, charted an uh, incredible career uh, in the law and then uh, into becoming a, a state Supreme Court justice. So thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so we always like to start out in Grab the Gavel when talking to people about their background, because, you know, when you see a judge in the robe sitting up uh, on the chair, you wonder, like, you know, how do they get here? Who are they? Uh, and we share some similarities. We're both uh, the children of immigrants. I'm worried that now when my mom listens to this podcast, she's going to say, why did you do all the things that Justice Liu did? So uh, <laughs> for my mom who's listening, please stop listening now, because uh, Justice Liu's incredible as Pat. But so your parents are Taiwanese uh, immigrants. You grew up, in, you were born in Georgia, is that right? But then you moved to California? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, my, my path to the bench was, um, I think, probably um, not foreordained, <laughs> to, put it in a, to put it in an understated way. I, uh, I grew up in an immigrant family. Uh, it's an experience that, you know, many, many people in America have had. Um, and I think it's a special experience because it, it gives you a little bit of a window into what it's like to be an outsider in the society, trying to peer in. Um, my parents were, were fortunate to have um, good educations and, and they came here and made a good life uh, in America for my brother and me. I think I had wonderful opportunities as a result, um, both educationally and um, in my home life. Uh, but I never thought about being a lawyer. It just wasn't part of the horizon uh, that was presented to me. My parents were family practice uh, doctors. My, my older brother became a doctor. Uh, like many um, you know, Asian American immigrants in particular, uh, that was kind of a well-trod path. And so by the time I got to college, I was headed to medical school. I, that's what I thought anyway. And it wasn't until after college that I uh, really examined what I wanted to do in life. And luckily had some good mentors along the way who helped point me in the right direction. And then that's how I got to law. I'd, I'd love to pull apart the thread on that a little bit because I think it's so interesting in two aspects. So the first is, uh, I'm curious, you know, what was your first experience with lawyers then? Because uh, like, like you, I had a similar experience is that um, I was preordained for me that I should go to medical school and I uh, will immediately uh, probably scream if I'm around blood. I get so easily, I'm easily, I'm <laughs> weak stomached. And so um, yeah. I think my parents were both very clear that wasn't in my future, but um, I also didn't have parents who were lawyers. And so how did you get exposed to the law to begin with? Yeah. Well, um, so the very first lawyer I think I ever came across uh, was not working as a lawyer. It was actually uh, my congressman, uh, Bob Matsui, uh, who served uh, with great distinction in Sacramento, where, which is my hometown. And he sponsored me to be a page in the U.S. House of Representatives back when there were such things. Um, and uh, this was the first introduction to something you know, law, politics, policy oriented. And it was so eye-opening to me. 
I never thought, you know, I didn't think about it as a career. However, I just thought it was something very novel, but um, Bob ended up being a lifelong friend and mentor to me. And I, you know, at various junctures along the way later on, you know, would hearken back to that relationship and that experience and understood that he was one of, you know, I didn't understand until later, but he was one of very, very few Asian American lawyers, you know, at the time that he became a lawyer and how novel that was and how he was trying to encourage, uh, right, people like me um, to consider uh, this, this path. So I think it, you know, it took um, quite a bit of um, just mind expanding in terms of it's not that the, the path wasn't available, it's just that you don't think of yourself, right, as occupying that role until someone taps you on the shoulder and says, you know what, you can really do this and look at what I've done, right? So that was very valuable. That's so neat. Uh, and you're gonna have to help our, our younger listeners. What would you describe a page uh, today? Uh, <laughs> what, what, what they, I don't know if they, they don't have- Well, they've been, they, pages have been displaced by email and text messaging. <laughs> <laughs> we literally, you know, were the gophers on Capitol Hill who ran paper messages, you know, back and forth between the offices. We distributed wow. lots of paper. We try to keep things organized on the House floor. Um, we uh, were basically like an all-purpose resource for the members and their staffs. Um, and it was, I mean, it was an incredible experience because as a page, okay. you, have, you have access to every um, nook and cranny of the Capitol, uh, which is you know, uh, a very uh, privileged thing. And so you get to see literally um, all the lawmaking processes in action. Yeah, my mom is a volunteer. She lives here in DC with us and she volunteers at the Capitol building, the CBC. So she tells me there's all these nook and crannies that she's like, I can't tell you, you're not part of the club. So, but I've heard <laughs> more of them. So, you know, about, uh, about them, it sounds, I mean, it's just such an amazing building. It's, I mean, it feels so lucky being a Judge Ram, we're directly across the street from the Capitol building. It's, it's True. a real pleasure. True. Um, well, so I think, you know, this career change is so interesting to me. One of the things I think, you know, it's so hard for students, uh, you know, I say there's, it feels like there's no GPS for your career. And sometimes you are on a path and you don't know what's out there. And I just, I think really admire you. Uh, so first I have to, again, I pumped up how cool you are. You did this thing called a Rhodes Scholarship, which is this incredible, a uh, very prestigious opportunity to go study uh, in Oxford University, probably one of the oldest universities in the world. Uh, and when I was reading about you, you were still on the path to medicine and that you got right. there and you're just like, I was. Hey, I'm going to change. It's like, was, was it scary or wasn't it? I mean, you know, especially even with those, that pressure from like family and things like that. To, how did you have the courage to think like, maybe I want to do something different? You know, um, I'd like to call it courage, but <laughs> I, I think at the time it felt a little bit scary. And uh, I, so the way I came to it was that I think in college, really, I discovered that I had a number of other interests, um, even as I was, you know, going through the pre-med motions. Um, I worked a lot um, in my extracurricular time on K through 12 education issues. Um, I was very interested in sort of diversity and civil rights type issues, both on campus and, and outside of it. And, you know, I was super lucky. I, I probably would have actually just gone to medical school if I had just, you know, not had the interruption, you know, to, to sort of uh, take a time out essentially. Um, and really think about the things that I found motivating, uh, certainly up to that point in my life when I was in college. I did, I was pre-med and I had gone through all the regular requirements that you needed to do academically, but 
I was also interested in a lot of other things. I worked a lot on um, K through 12 education issues. I became very interested in diversity issues and civil rights issues. Um, I worked on those issues both on campus and off campus. And largely I thought of them as, you know, sort of extracurricular or peripheral, right? To the main course of study. And a lot of this is just reimagining yourself, moving things that seem to be at the periphery um, but you notice that in your life, you never let go of them or, or that they're very motivating for you and moving them towards the center. And um, for me, it was that kind of gradual process. And I, um, I remember it, you know, my important mentors included not just um, Bob Matsui, who was, who was very important, but um, in, in, the, in the two years I spent overseas um, at Oxford during the summer in between, I uh, met and worked for then lawyer, uh, David Tatel, who was uh, working in an education law practice at the Hogan and Hartson, now Hogan and Lovell's firm. And this was right up my alley in terms of my substantive interests. And it was great to have someone who could show me how they made a career, right, out of similar kind of interests. And it, it, these were just huge awakenings for me because it's not that these paths were not available previously, it's just that I never thought of myself as either you know qualified or uh, as someone who was uh, suited in any way for that role, and you know people like David and and Bob and and others, you know literally just sort of tap you on the shoulder and say you know what you can do this. Um, I did this. You can do this. Yeah, I think you know we'll talk a little bit about. I think you have such an incredible advocacy you do through sharing your narrative of the importance of mentors, but. I couldn't agree more, you know, to become a magistrate judge. I had, there were judges here at this courthouse in, in DC who said, you know, you should think about this. And right. I just, I never, first of all, there's no one, there was no, at the time, has never been a Muslim judge in this courthouse, uh, in this circuit. And there's very few, only had uh, two others at the time in the history of the United States. And so I just never, it wasn't that I didn't want to do, I just even think that I could have been in that seat and to have two mentors just say like, think about it. That was revelatory to open my eyes. Like this can be in front of you. That's right. I, I, I mean, the same thing happened to me when I became a professor and the same thing happened to me when I became a judge. Neither of those roles, which ended up being the bulk of my professional life, um, neither of those roles were roles that I contemplated for myself. Uh, being a professor was again, a slow process of, you know, being in law school and having some valuable, um, uh, professors, uh, instructors who, who said, you know what, you can do this. Um, and, you know, they, they, again, sort of held me, held me by the hand and said, here's how to do it. And the same thing, uh, you know, in, in thinking about being a judge, I never thought about being a judge. I didn't really think that I knew nothing about it really. Um, uh, and I was perfectly happy teaching, writing, you know, being a, a professor. Uh, but then, you know, people started, you know, just like you said, Zia, you know, saying to me, like, have you thought about, you know, this? Have you thought about that? And you start, you know, expanding your mind about what you could do. Yeah. The, the best thing was one person who named Nameless was just like, hey, if I can do this, you can do this, which it's always <laughs> amazing when you meet someone who's very humble and you're like, no, I look up to you so much, but thank right. you for, for putting right. us in the same plane. Uh, I, you know, so you talked a little bit about uh, Judge Tatel and so far, uh, some of our listeners out there, just to give you context, like this is in my mind, I think a lot of things in terms of basketball. So like he's a LeBron James level in terms of the legal world. I don't know <laughs> if Judge, Judge Tatel, uh, if you 
when you next talk to him, perhaps he does not often get, uh, I don't know who he's anal analogized to, but please let him know in my mind uh, <laughs> with LBJ. He's, he's, um, he's one of the most outstanding judges, I think. Totally. Uh, so speaking of Judge Tatel and his incredible person that he is and what you know he did for you, I want to drill down that a little bit. You know, I didn't know what a clerkship was uh, even in law school. Uh, it just wasn't on my radar. You know, I was very focused on it. I had a lot of debt from undergrad and law school. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought of like the glitz and glamour of corporate law. That's where I was very focused. And, and I went there. And later on, when I started meeting my colleagues and things like, oh, I clerked for this judge. I was like, what is, I don't even know what that is. Uh, and then later on, I, uh, I realized like this is an incredible opportunity. And you know, I, it's one of my regrets is that I didn't, you know, really pursue that hard. I did apply mid a couple of years out and I got two interviews, but I did not get a clerkship, but at least I'm happy I did. But um, you had two incredible clerkships, one with Judge, Judge Tatel at the, the DC Circuit and then with uh, Justice Ginsburg at the Supreme Court. Uh, just loved it. If you could give a little bit of flavor for our listeners so that, you know, those young aspiring lawyers out there, I, to tell them why I think those clerkships were so meaningful to you. And then just anything you tell us about, you know, two really incredible jurists, Judge Taylor, yeah, uh, Judge Ginsburg. They, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to overstate how um, significantly those two experiences uh, shaped my career. Uh, with Judge Tatel, it was uh, an incredibly um, close and intimate um, working, working relationship, but which then evolved into um, a lifelong friendship. Um, I am still in very close um, touch with him. In fact, I just saw him for breakfast last week. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, and we see each other, you know, uh, well, the pandemic notwithstanding, I mean, we've yeah. seen each other, you know, over these many decades, uh, many, many times, and, and I never make any important life decision without talking <laughs> to him. He's that kind of person for me. Um, and we all need that kind of people, you know, those kind of people in our lives. He was an incredibly detailed oriented writer, uh, very analytically rigorous, um, extremely um, fair and also has uh, just an unflagging belief in the system uh, and the way it's supposed to work. I think Justice Ginsburg, very similar actually in, in many of these respects, um, she of course was already, uh, by the time I landed in her chambers, had already secured her place in American history. Yes. <laughs> so, so whatever she did as a justice on the Supreme Court was just kind of extra because she had already litigated all the important, you know, uh, gender equality decisions that were on the books. And that that already was a singular accomplishment, um, not to mention, you know, her earlier career as an academic, um, one of the early women scholars uh, to uh, enter the law faculties of America. I mean, people forget like how extraordinary those feats were um and they're, they're they only forget about them because she went on to accomplish <laughs> many other things yeah I, you know i really i wish that i had an opportunity clerk but i'm now living a little vicariously through hopefully <laughs> i just my clerk so i have I, I think it's really neat i see that you know i know you're an advocate for having um clerks come through once a year through chambers and so i i'm literally this week handing off from the first time for my first clerks uh, to my new clerks, and I and I told my new clerks, uh, one is a recent graduate from law school, the other was uh, a year out, one's from uh, Chicago, uh, and the other one's from Texas, and I just said, you don't understand, this is much more nerve-wracking for me than for you. You're here for a year and you're gone, but yeah. whether I succeed or fail will be based on you, no pressure, <laughs> but uh, it's so refreshing to have these new faces in here, and they're so excited about the courthouse and the work we're doing. I just, I, I really like that that's something that you, feel so strongly about art that you think it's a good idea. 
Yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a extremely valuable experience as I've said for myself and, and I would love to see more people have that opportunity. It's one of the great sort of opportunities we have, you know, as, as officers of the bench, which is um, being able to provide that kind of close mentoring um, and um, intimate learning uh, experience for uh, people coming up, you know, essentially behind us. And I always think, you know, uh, we try to do our best in, in our rulings and in the opinions we write, but one of the most important legacies, right, that we can leave um, is all the people who we try to bring along with us. And I think, I, you know, that that's really a, a great, great gift and opportunity that we can um, offer. So you kind of have this yearning for academics. And so you go become a professor uh, at Berkeley uh, and then, you know, you come down the path and, you know, as you said, you didn't necessarily um, know that the that you were going to become a Supreme Court justice that was in your path, but how did you decide to make the leap to academics and then from academics to a judge? Were there distinct moments or was it just kind of organic and evolved? Yeah, so um, in terms of getting into academia, um, I think it really goes back to the opportunities I had in law school to really write and uh, do some you know, significant um, scholarly work. And I credit that to the you know incredible professors I had who took time to actually, I mean, this is a lesson about how to mentor and, and work with people. You know, they took time to read drafts of things that I um, submitted to them. And, you know, the, the art of reading someone else's work and commenting on it, like we're asked to do that time and time again in our lives. Um, yeah. We should not forget like how an important a task that is, you know, especially for a young person uh, who, whose work you are reviewing and what an incredible teaching moment, right? Those opportunities can provide. And um, I still remember many, not just, not just, you know, uh, from law school, but, you know, even, um, you know, times when I was a summer associate at a firm or, and, you know, when I eventually did become an associate at a firm before going into academia, just little instances of people taking the time, right, to offer you a little critique or a little helpful commentary or something that, that you know, gets into your memory bank, not just for the thing itself, but for the example, right, that they showed of what it means, right, to take that kind of uh, mentoring seriously. So I think um, getting into academia was a lot about that, was, you know, having people, you know, say, oh, you know what, you do have, you do have, you know, what it takes really to uh, be a scholar, be a teacher. You know, that, that was a, um, a revelatory process for me, because I, again, like I didn't really think of myself in that role. Um, the, the process of becoming a judge was in some ways even more revelatory in the sense that I, um, first, I think, I think many people may know I was first nominated for the federal bench unsuccessfully. Um, and that was, you know, a little bit of a, uh, baptism by fire in the sense, <laughs> yeah. you know, anybody who's ever gone through the uh, federal confirmation, uh, meat grinder successfully or unsuccessfully knows that it's a very, very arduous process. Um, I learned a lot about myself, you know, through that process, learned about you know, things I, I cared about and what I, what I did and the way my record, you know, um, shows the things that I de decided to devote my passions to. Um, and then um, after that process uh, sort of dissolved, um, Governor Jerry Brown, you know, um, sort of said, hey, you know, what, what, what do you think about the state Supreme Court? And the rest is history. But, you know, it was all a series of unexpected events, again, largely at the suggestion of others. And, I would say to people, actually, you know, you don't have to do what I did, which is sort of 
sit back and wait or and I wasn't even waiting. I mean, that's sort of the point is that I, I was just like almost like happenstance, you know, people saying, have you thought about, you know, being a judge? You mind if I put your name on a list or whatever, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, it was just a slow process of, of, again, expanding my own vision of myself to think, oh, you know, I could do this. But I would say to people, you know, now, if you want to do this, right, uh, you don't have to wait for that. You know, you, you should raise your hand and be active in your community, be active in the profession, um, you know, develop the networks, you know, that are needed um, and, you know, go for it, you know, because um, you, you know, you can do this. Uh, a lot of people think like judges are very exalted people or whatever. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, we're, we're ordinary people who have had, you know, really extraordinary um, opportunities and yes. along the way. And so there's no reason that anybody who um, really wants to put their mind to it cannot do this. And, um, you know, some more power to you to, to make the, make the effort. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. That is the central theme of grab the gavels. We want people to believe that, you know, you can go in and do that metaphorically, grab the gavel. You can be a judge. You don't, you might not think it looks you look like a judge or sound like a judge or come from the okay. background, but that those doors are open for you. And I, I mean, I think what what you said also just really resonates with me. One of the things I always tell students is, you know, it's true that you do need to be uh, frequently in the right place at the right time, but that is so self-defeating if you think that's the only path forward. It's your job to put yourself out in as many places as possible. So when that door is there, you, you can you can jump through it and even know that there's a door to look at. And so there are things that you can do. And you know, in today's world of social media and uh, people out there, like you can connect with judges, you can connect with lawyers. Uh, I think you'll find that you know lawyers and judges are always looking to try to help mentor young students and, and help them find their path. So I uh, really appreciate you saying that, Justice Luke. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's so many folks I meet along the way, law students, who who do say exactly what you said, which is, well, I don't look like a judge. <laughs> I don't know what they think a judge looks like, but I, yeah. but I, you know, but that's exactly the point: is that there is no look. Um, you know, there's just a there's just a bunch of people who, um, is including the next generation, who are coming up behind us, and they are, you know, all these people are going to be the judges and leaders of of tomorrow, and. And there's no reason that people shouldn't think of themselves in those roles. We've interviewed a circuit judge, a district judge, a magistrate judge, and a state Supreme Court judge now. And so uh, we'll continue to, as we try to get judges from different backgrounds, but uh, the state Supreme Court being the highest court uh, in the state of California, appeals regularly go to the US Supreme Court. Uh, two things I wanna ask you. One, you have to tell us about your interview because it is something of, of lore because we know there were two humans, but also a dog there. And also just a little bit about what is the California State Supreme Court? <laughs> sure, I'm happy to say a bit about that. Um, well, you know, I um, I had a very unique interview with uh, Governor Brown um, and, you know, he is a very um, intellectually uh, interested, curious, nimble uh, person. And he's unlike any other sort of, you know, high level politician I've ever met. Um, in fact, to call him a politician is not even, doesn't even seem apt. Um, he's just a polymath, really um, incredibly smart and uh, very well read in so many different areas. He began the interview with me. It was him and his, his very, um, you know, uh, also incredibly smart and talented uh, spouse, Anne Gust, who's a lawyer in her own right, and then their dog, Sutter, <laughs> at the time. And it's just the three of them, you know, interviewing me in, in this loft apartment that they had in Oakland. And um, his very first question was, what do you think is the basis of law? 
<laughs> wow, thought, yeah. This is a crazy question. Yeah. You know, because I just been through this federal confirmation process where people are asking all kinds of, you know, much more uh, uh, let's just say conventional questions. Right. Yes. You know, what do you think of Roe versus Wade? Right, right. Like yeah. You know, the questions that that nominees can't really answer. Right. Um and uh and you know uh, so he was just super interested in, the, you know, um, the the underpinnings of of all of it, and so we had this amazing conversation. It was like, um, you know, kind of being in a graduate seminar or something like that about natural law, about how social contract comes into formation, about how the common law came to be, and now we live you know, as Guido Calabresi has often said, in the age of statutes. And so what does that mean for the common law? What does that mean for agencies? And what does that mean for courts? You know, this, this kind of really probing um, from the fundamentals, you know, sort of approach to, um, to uh, understanding a person's thinking and this kind of thing. So I, I was just super impressed with him you know, just at, at his range and, and the set of concerns. He never asked me actually a single question about current issues. He never asked me my views on the death penalty. He didn't ask me my views about abortion or anything like that. It just, it was not, that was not the way he thought about who he wanted to appoint, right, to the bench. Um, so that was very revelatory. And um, the court is a seven member court, um, you know, the, the state high court of, of California, the biggest state. And, you know, we are a very, very collegiate body. Um, I've had the great fortune to work with a number of amazing colleagues, um, some of whom, you know, have turned over during my time on the court. I'm now at 10 years, believe it or not, on this court. I, I still feel, you know, quote unquote new, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm clearly not anymore. So, um, it's been uh, a wonderful um, uh, role in terms of seeing the breadth of the law. So state court, I think as you, as you and your listeners may know, uh, state court is a place of general jurisdiction, which means we hear every kind of claim under the sun. And so we see a tremendous diversity of, of the expanse, right, of, of the law. Um, tort, you know, contract, property, common law, you know, type subjects all the way to complicated uh, statutes, both state and federal. Um, we have, you know, a whole range of administrative law issues. We have tax, we have insurance, we have probate, we have, you know, everything, constitutional issues, uh, both state and federal. So it's a tremendous uh, tour, right, through the um, entire legal landscape every day, just going to work. Um, and we're also aware of our place in the overall system, which is to say, you know, state high courts are um, obviously the last interpreters of state law, and so they occupy a very important place. California, I think, is uh, particularly uh, unique in that regard because of the size of our jurisdiction. So oftentimes, especially in business cases, we are aware that a rule that we might adopt as a matter of state law uh, effectively becomes a national rule because, you know, people adapt their practices to large jurisdictions. And so, you know, um, that's just something uh, lurking in the background all the time. Um, I think, you know, we've been lucky that for the most part in my time on the court, we have largely kept the courts independent um, and non-political and, um, you know, hope always to stay that way. Yeah. So that's That's been good, all good. That's great. Well, one last question, and then we have a very quick lightning round. Sure. Uh, but last question, I think, is... I didn't know um, 
before I became a judge, I thought the reason to become a judge is you can really touch people's lives inside the courtroom. There's so much you can do here. But what I've learned from seeing from other judges like yourself is there is so much you can do outside the courtroom. I know uh, and am so motivated about uh, issues about diversity in the judiciary, uh, in the legal profession, and I'm just getting started, but I have the luxury of getting to, to see leaders in the field like yourself. You know, it's an issue I know you're so passionate about, and it's, it's an enormous issue. So it's, there's not really um, a specific question there. Just, uh, I don't know if you could talk just briefly about how is it, you, you know, you found that there's this opportunity to really improve uh, and do outreach about the issues of diversity as a judge. Well, um, it's an issue of great personal um, interest to me, um, just from my own background. Uh, all the things that we had talked about previously, Zia, just about you know, um, not not sort of thinking that this role is is for you. Um, uh, I, I think that you know some of that um, is you know hopefully is something that we can communicate in a different way, you know, to to folks coming up behind us that you know they do belong in this profession. And that is something, you know, these are things that they can do. Um, I do think that, you know, it, the, that the judiciary, as well as, you know, virtually all the institutions of society um, work better and are perceived, right, as more legitimate when they are representative in a way of the cross-section of the, of the population whom they serve. Um, we see that in the legal system, of course, all the time. Um, and you know, it's not that there needs to be some sort of numerical strict, you know, proportionality, which of course, you know, raises all kinds of concerns and that's not even the goal really. But it's just that, you know, um, you know, the bench in California, you think California is a, you know, majority minority state uh, with a wonderfully diverse population uh, to some degree, right? The profession of law and uh, the bench in particular um, should be recognizable to the people we serve, right? As, you know, representative of them. They have, a, I think, a rightful expectation of that um, just as a citizenry. So um, I think that, so, so this is something that we need to work on, of course, because um, the legal profession has been actually getting more diverse. Uh, just if you look at all the classes of uh, students who are graduating today, uh, as opposed to say 40 years ago. Uh, but it's, you know, it's sort of figuring out how to make sure the doors of advancement are open to them um, and how the ladders, you know, that, that get to the higher rungs, especially of the profession uh, are, going to, are, are going to be available. This has been, I mean, I've talked a lot about Asian Americans in this regard, but it's not exclusively, you know, uh, uh, obviously a problem of, for Asian Americans. Um, I think all groups who have felt uh, at one point or another on the outside of the mainstream um, have struggled uh, to get uh, not just into the mainstream, but into the really top leadership positions in the society where decisions are made. I think that's been, you know, one of the most important developments of the last um, 10, 20 years or more uh, in the legal profession is just the changing face, really, of, of the profession. And I think this is all for the good, because I think uh, our citizenry will have greater trust uh, in the system, and this and the system will, you know, in fact, make better decisions if it actually includes all the voices, you know, uh, and backgrounds of the people that is trying to serve. Couldn't agree more. Okay, well, the last part is a little fun thing we like to do. Former magistrate judge uh, Paul Grewal uh, does a lightning round, and so uh, <laughs> as again, I just follow my mentors. Whatever I see they do, I just try to mimic it. And so, for our West Coast audience, this will be very obvious. But for maybe some of the others, not out of the Pac-12, 
there's the big game, Cal versus Stanford, and you are both a Cal and Stanford <laughs> person. So That's lightning right. round question, Justice Liu, who are you rooting for at the Cal-Stanford game? <laughs> you know, I often sit on my hands okay. because I have dual affiliations yes. at this okay. point in life. <laughs> so it's a very judicial uh, answer, and so I'll, I'll let you, and only you, because uh, you're a hero, I'll let you take a pass. Um, next, I know you love 80s music, so I have two 80s music uh, lightning round questions. I want you to rank, if you can, um, I'm going to say in of these five in order from your favorite going down. Excellent. Uh, okay. Don't Stop Believing, Take On Me, JBJ's Living on a Prayer, Wake Me Up you, Before You Go and Pour Some Sugar on Me. So that's our, our five. Don't Stop Believing, Take On Me, Living <laughs> on a Prayer, Wake Me Up Before You Go, Pour Some Sugar. Or you can just say one is your absolute favorite of all of them and the rest, there's nothing else. Well, anybody who lived through 80s music has has got to like uh, Journey. So Don't yeah. Stop Believing is like, you know, one of the classics of the era, not just yeah. for the song itself, but for all the other songs that it evokes. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's just genre setting. And then um, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go is also uh, uh, a very evocative song. Yes. <laughs> and that one um, has a catchy hook. So that one um, also belongs near the top. Okay, so we'll tell all of our younger listeners, get on uh, your, your music, your phones. I am really dating myself. Yes, no, that's right. I'm there with you. These are my jams. These are my jams. So get on your phones, look these up, and be prepared to have your mind blown. Um, the young people are like, what? What is this? <laughs> uh, last two last little night questions. Do you have a favorite Madonna song from the 80s? Oh, my gosh. You know, I don't have a favorite Madonna song from the uh, 80s, but, you know, uh, I mean, there are so many songs. So from it's the all great. Yeah. But what is amazing is that Madonna recorded uh, the piece with Justin Timberlake, uh, Four Minutes, uh, which was, I think, when she was 50 wow. um, or, or, or older even. And she, you know, um, I mean, it goes without saying, like, she just, um, she looked great. She was, you know, in you know top shape. In, she vocally. Kills it, yeah. Yeah, she just absolutely kills it. And and I think people don't appreciate enough um, the degree to which this all requires work. You know, we sort of look at our entertainers and, and celebrities as somehow, you know, kind of naturals yeah. at what they do. But you know what? All these people work incredibly hard at what they do. And you don't get to be that good unless you work uh, really, really hard. So, you know, it's hard. You know, you yeah. talk about Donna, it's like back to the 80s, but she didn't quit. You know, she yeah. still worked hard, even all the way, even now, you know, so so it's something to really behold and admire. All right. Last question. I know you're an avid runner. Uh, 10K or half marathon, what's your go to? I'm, I'm excising marathons. <laughs> they're just too hard. So if you have to go do one like for fun, what would you prefer? Oh, uh, well, I'm 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 definitely half marathon at this. Point. All right. Yeah. OK, fair enough. <laughs> all right. Well, Justice Lou, thank you so much for your time today, your wisdom, your humor uh, and for being an inspiration to many of us coming up uh, in the judiciary. Uh, and Asian Americans. Thank you. Thank you, Zia. It's been a lot of fun to be with you. You've been listening to Grab the Gavel, a podcast series from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. We hope you've enjoyed this segment and learn more about the Rendell Center's mission and work at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.